praise you that you are the risen Savior and there is no other. Father God, we present our worship service to you this morning as an act of love, as an act of appreciation for all that you have done for us, Lord Jesus. We come now to worship you, to praise you, to lift up your wonderful name. that we go through because God is able. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you will come and meet our needs tonight. Now let your presence be felt amongst us. Bring us forth from the depths of the deep. Bring us forth as the so that we can praise you and the exposition of your word this morning, Lord, let it not take this lightly, Lord Jesus. Maybe this will be painless for individuals. Maybe it's for all of us. We don't know, Lord Jesus, but we thank you for it, Lord. We pray for Amen.
may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Northwest Baptist Church. If you are visiting with us, we're so glad that you are here with us. And we'd like to have a record of your attendance. If you'd simply fill out the Connect card located in the chair in front of you and fill it out and put it in the offering plate in just a few minutes, we would greatly appreciate it. And then everybody who is involved in our children's ministry, if you would head over to our conference center, uh, our conference room right after the uh, morning service, the sooner you get there, the sooner the meeting will be over. Uh, she said, my wife has said 15 minutes and she likes to stay with that 15 minutes because we want to go to lunch. And so get over there as quickly as possible and then come back and talk to everybody uh, later on. But it'll take place right after the service over in the conference room. Wednesday night, invite you to come out for our dinner at 530 and then stick around for our Bible studies for the adult and youth and children on Wednesday night. And those begin at 630. And then this Saturday, uh, men's ministry will take to have their meeting and uh, breakfast. 9.30 a.m. right in the conference room. Hope that all of you men could come out for that. And then ushers, as you are coming forward for this morning's tithes and offering, or the rest of you, the announcements are in your bulletin or online, and we hope that you will look at them very carefully. And then uh, just a reminder, three weeks from, I mean, two weeks from tonight, uh, a special evening service prayer service, corporate prayer meeting at 6 o'clock right here in the, in the sanctuary. We hope that you will join us for that uh, Wonderful, wonderful time of prayer. That's on a Sunday night, May 7th at 6 o'clock in the evening. And so we hope that you will make that special evening service. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer for our tithes and offerings. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. And let us reciprocate that love for you now as we give so that this work at Northwest can continue on. Bless this offering now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Richard and Johan. Would you all now stand for the reading of Scripture this morning found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Our verses for the year for our church. Would you recite them along with me, please? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray our Lord's prayer together now. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Musicians, you did a great job today as well as last week, as well as always. We had a great Sunday last week. I must say, just this is a good visual aid. It's someone asked me, Don't you love Easter? When you're in the ministry, Easter takes its a toll on you. Not only are you busy, but you know that a lot of people are coming to appease their moms and dads. I like when the Easter season's over because this is the people that we're going to build this church with. Can't build a church without bricks. You hear me? You're the bricks. I'm a brick. And Christ and the Holy Spirit and His Word are the builders. But we've got to have people here to be bricks. Is that true or false? It it can't be any more true than that. Today I'm going to be beginning a five-part series on the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas of the Reformation. This is the 500th year since the Protestant Reformation. It was in 1517, on October 31st, that a monk decided... He had had enough with the false teachings of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church. And he decided he would nail 95 theses on the north door of the Wittenberg Cathedral or Castle Church. And they were a protest against specifically the selling of indulgences. How many of you have ever seen, uh, raise your hand, if you've ever seen St. Peter's Basilica? Beautiful, beautiful cathedral. That was built on bad theology. The Pope gave the German king the right to sell indulgences, take some for him and take some for the church, if he would allow his minions to go out and tell people that if they gave money to the church that they would get their family members out of purgatory. And they built one of the world's greatest pieces, or one of the world's greatest structures. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But you need to know that that was built on false doctrine and false teaching. There is only one way to God, and it is through Christ. When this life is over, we are with Christ. There is no purgatory. The five solas then were the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura. The word sola means alone. Right? Like when we sing a solo, it means alone. Sola means alone. Sola Scriptura. Sola Gratia. Sola Fide. Sola Christi. And Soli Deo Gloria were a protest against false authorities and false doctrine. If you want to impress your friends, make sure you pronounce these in their Latin phrase, okay? Why say it in English if you can say it in Latin? But they mean Scripture alone, faith alone, 
grace alone, Christ alone, for God's glory alone. This is the religion of Protestants. Over the next five weeks, my hope is to unpack these doctrines of the Reformation in a fresh and a new way for each and every one of you. These doctrines are not dead doctrines that you learn about in a textbook. But when lived out, they give feet to our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of the reformers. If it weren't for them, Lord God, where would we be? Still under the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And Lord God, we praise you that through their sacrifice and through their bravery, Lord, that you put in their hearts the Holy Spirit to commit themselves to these doctrines, Lord, we are the recipients of a great tradition. Lord, let us pick up the banner and carry on these doctrines, these great doctrines of the Christian faith. And I pray this according to your will, in Jesus' name, amen. The modern mind sees itself as too intelligent to accept the Bible as the word of God. For starters, the modern man is not even sure that there even is a God that he believes in. If there is, it's certainly not the angry God of the Bible, according to most people. One New York Times bestselling author, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, described the God of the Bible in this way. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Think about that. The most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's the modern view of the God of the Old Testament. Roughly 7 out of 10 of those Americans who identify themselves as religiously unaffiliated still, though, believe in a God or a universal spirit. The majority of, however, do not identify with the Judeo-Christian God, but rather with a spirit of the earth or a universal spirit. Don't be impressed when people tell you they believe in God. Ask them to define that. God is defined himself. How do you define it? That's 7 out of 10. In other words, the religious nuns, as in for religious practice, they mean no thanks. Religious nuns, as in no religion at all, want to create God in their own image. They have not become atheists as much as they have become idolaters. Slightly more than a third of Americans read scripture at least once a week, while, 40, now, while 45% of Americans seldom or never read scripture. Once you consider that the word scripture in the article that I'm citing refers to every religious book, the number of people who actually read the Bible is minuscule. Scripture can refer to the Quran. Or the Bhagavad Gita, or the Upanishad, or the Jehovah's Witness book, 
or the Book of Mormon, all classify as scriptures and still more in this article. It is minuscule, therefore, how many Americans read scripture. We should not be shocked then to find the West in the shape that it's in. One of the worst historical atrocities committed under the banner of the cross, I say a symbol and not the word of God, were the crusades when the word of God was gone. They didn't rally alongside the word of God. The Pope brought about men who wanted to rid themselves of their past grievances and he promised that if they would fight in the Lord's army and take back the Holy Land, that God would forgive them of all their sins. So the worst of men signed up for the Crusades. That's why you find terrible, terrible acts of rape and murder and infanticide in the Crusades. It's not because Christians took the book and followed the book. It's because Christians lost the book and followed the word of man. So when your friends tell you, oh, the Crusades are so bad, say, yes, they were. Well, Christians did that. No, they didn't. Not true ones, anyway. Only 75% of American Christians, okay, so this is a special class of people. Only 75% of American Christians, not 75% of Americans, but 75% of American Christians believe that the Bible is God's word. That means that of the 100% of people in America who identify themselves as Christians, only 75% believe that the Bible is God's word. That statistic is staggering to me for two reasons. Number one, that there are Christians who don't believe that the Bible is the word of God is staggering. That should be staggering to all of us. But the staggering fact on the other side is that 75% of people who consider themselves to be Christians still believe that the Word of God or the Bible is the Word of God. That's staggering too, for different reasons. But don't get too excited. The 71% of Americans who consider themselves to be Christians are divided on how to even interpret the Bible. About 4 in 10 Christians, that's 39%, say the Bible's text is the word of God and should be taken literally. So that number that was 75% just went down to 40. 4 out of 10 believe that the word of God or that the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally. 36% say it should not be interpreted literally. So 39% say it should, 36% say it shouldn't. And this is Christians, not Americans, Christians. So almost equal to the amount of people who say that the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally, there is an other side of this that says the Bible is not necessarily to be taken literally and is not necessarily the word of God. Or express, 36% say it should be interpreted literally or express another or we can look at another opinion. 
And then a separate 18% of Christians view the Bible as a book written by men, not God. A Gallup poll from 2014 found that 28% of Americans believe that the Bible is the actual word of God and that it should be taken literally. This is somewhat below the 38% to 40% seen in the late 1970s. So we've gone from 40 to 28% of people in America who believe that the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally. But about half of Americans continue to say the Bible is the inspired word of God not to be taken literally, meaning a combined 75% believe the Bible is in some way connected to God. But that doesn't mean that they take the Bible literally. About one in five Americans view the Bible in purely secular terms as ancient fables, legends, history, and precepts written by men, which is up from 13% in 1976. So follow the statistics. We're not getting better. We don't hold the Bible in higher regard today. This year that we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the doctrines of sola scriptura, gratia, fide, gloria, Deo, and Christi. This flies, these statistics fly in the face of the historical Christian belief about the Bible. Christian apologist Norman Geisler says the history of the Christian church is in overwhelming support of what the Bible claims for itself, namely to be the divinely inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. David said in Psalms 119, 1 through 60, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Isaiah said that grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. The author of Hebrew told us that the word of God is not only living, but that it's active, meaning that it still does what it has always done, penetrated the center of man and scrutinized, dare I say, even judge the thoughts and intents of the heart of man. I love this picture up here. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a Bible that's so dusty and somebody wrote in it to it, read me. You know, like your car, when your car is dirty and somebody walks by, if they can write, wash me in your car, you need to get a car wash. <laughs> by the way, if you want it to rain outside, get your car washed. Wash my car Friday. <laughs> Murphy's Law says that that constitutes a sacrifice to God to let it rain. Anyways, but what about you? That's the question. What about you? What do you believe about the word of God? And I mean, not what do you think about in your head. I mean, what does it look like in your life? What role does the Bible play in your life? It's one thing when we band up together and charge America head on and say, you Americans are all hypocritical. If only you would change, this world would be different. But do we start by looking in the mirror? You can only, as my father used to say, son, you can only worry about yourself. 
so I'm worried about you this morning. I'm worried about what we are going to do as a church. Do you merely read the word and then forget what it says? Do you read and remember the word yet fail to do what it teaches? This morning I want us to examine ourselves as individuals and as a collective body in Christ in the light of the historical doctrine of sola scriptura. My hope for this church as a whole is that we will firmly plant ourselves in the soil of God's word. A cold understanding of the doctrine of sola scriptura will leave us saying, so what? In terms of its importance to our lives. But we must live the doctrine of sola scriptura. Being like trees planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in their season and whose leaves do not wither. The word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through joint and marrow and is a thought, it is a critic of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. The word of God is alive. Philip Schaff, a noted church historian, said, Every true progress in church history is conditioned by a new and deeper study of the scriptures. While the humanists went back to the ancient classics and revived the spirit of Greek and Roman paganism, the reformers went back to the sacred scriptures in the original languages and revived the spirit of apostolic Christianity. A spirit. A spirit. When Jesus illustrated the Spirit, he says it was like wind. You can't see it, but you can see its effects. You can go outside and look at the trees and watch them blow back and forth. You can't see the wind, but you can see the trees moving. What will tell me and you whether or not sola scriptura is living and active in our lives is how the trees are moving. Guess who the trees are? Me and you. Your mama and your cousin too. Guys, I am first and foremost a joker. If we are going to grow as a church... It must happen by and according to God's word. Back to the scriptures cried the reformers and back to the scriptures cries your pastor. We must build our church on the apostles and prophets, not the sociologists and the philosophers. But make no mistake, this is not something that I can do for you. Every individual in this church must commit himself and herself to living out the doctrine of sola scriptura in their personal daily lives. You say, is this going to be a message about having a daily devotional? It certainly won't be less than that. But it's so much more. It means like James says, when you read the word of God, don't be like a man who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he looks like. But do what the scriptures say. Our statement of faith as a church is not dead proclamation of our beliefs, but rather a standard to live by. 
every individual in this church must, must commit themselves to this statement. Here's what our first belief says of what we believe in our statement of faith. It's why so many people, when they see us online, come to this church because they're looking for a church that affirms the word of God. Here's what our first statement of belief says. We believe that the Bible is the written word of God by which men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote exactly what God intended them to write. We believe that God's inspiration extends only to those 66 books found within the Old and New Testaments. As such, we believe that the Bible is inspired in all its parts, down to the very words. Inerrant in all matters, that means it is without failure and infallible as our authoritative rule of faith and practice. Our first core value as a church is the Bible. That's the first statement of our beliefs. It is not mis a mistake that the Bible appears first. And the first core value of our church is not a mistake that it's the word of God. Here's what our core value says. The Bible is the final authority in everything we do. As such, the Bible is the focal point of our assembling together, either in our worship services or in our small group Bible studies. We believe that God inspired men to write his word so that when men speak in the Bible, so does God. We also entrust our whole lives to God's word, committing ourselves to the Bible's laws and commands, its structures for the family, society, government, and the church, and to be a critic of the thoughts and actions of every individual believer. Let us therefore resolve ourselves this day to live out what we confess. Let us live out the doctrine of sola scriptura. I want to look first at the historical definition of what this word means. Sola scriptura means the Bible alone is the word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. That's quoting Dr. James Anderson. It has both a negative and a positive aspect to it. Negatively, Sola Scriptura denies that human beings, regardless of their clerical status and alleged prophetic gifting, not many of us follow the Pope, but we follow our own prophetic gifting, occupy an authority greater than the Bible. Positively, Sola Scriptura means that Scripture alone is the only inspired, that means breathed out by God, Infallible, that means unfailing in all that Scripture teaches. And inerrant, that means Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Rule of faith and practice. Let me clarify this. As the rallying cry of the Reformation, scholars called for the formal cause of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura. If they were going to charge the gates of Rome... And the Vatican, they were going to do so with a Bible in hand. If they were going to argue that salvation is by grace alone, and faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, they were going to do so with Scripture. Alistair McGrath says, if the reformers set out to dethrone the Pope, then they enthroned the Bible. The Bible became 
the foundation for everything the Protestants believe. So that you could judge a Christian by whether or not they live by the word of God. Because Christian is as Christian does, to quote Forrest Gump. There is a negative aspect to this definition and a positive aspect. Negatively, the doctrine of sola scriptura came out of a time when men followed other men. Most of the world that calls itself Christian today still follows the edicts of a man. They follow the edicts of the Pope. They follow the teachings of pastors. But the reformers gave the word of God to every individual Christian and said, this will be your final authority. If the popes fail to keep the word of God, then the popes sin too. They are not greater than God. When we talk about faith and practice, it refers to the dual nature of all religious traditions. That is, what does a group believe and what does it practice? For our beliefs and for our practices, we must define them according to the word of God. Well, let me give you some quotes of how the reformers believed the word of God should be handled. Martin Luther said this. When the Bible speaks, we assuredly believe that God himself speaks unto us. He also said that the Bible is God's word as surely as if God himself were speaking to you. John Calvin, the reformer after Luther, said, For by his word, God rendered faith unambiguous forever. I hear people say all the time, aren't there a lot of questions? No, there aren't. The rules of faith are established in the word of God. God rendered faith unambiguous forever. A faith that should be superior to all opinions. Now in order that true religion may shine upon us, we ought to hold that it must take its beginning from heavenly doctrine and that no one can get even the slightest taste of right and sound doctrine, unless he is a pupil of the scriptures. William Tyndale, the great translator of the English Bible, once debated a priest on the meaning of scripture. The priest remarked, it would be better to be without God's law than to be without the Pope's. To which Tyndale responded, if God spares my life, I will cause the plowboy in the field to know more scripture than even the Pope. The great confessions of the Christian faith state as follows. Belgic Confession, which is the best symbolic statement of Calvinist system doctrine, says this. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of man, but that men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Peter says, and that afterwards God, from a special care which he has for us in our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and the apostles, 
to commit his revealed word to writing, and he himself wrote with his own finger the two tablets of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scripture. You see, there's nothing special about the leather binding of your Bible or the gold lining of its pages. What makes the Word of God or the Bible special is that it comes from a heavenly source. It is God who makes the Bible special. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says this. This is my favorite confession of faith. It says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, An infallible, that means unfailing, infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It further says the whole plan and purpose of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture to which nothing is to be added at any time, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by the traditions of men. Well, this is what the Reformers taught. The question is whether or not the Reformers lived according to their own principle of sola scriptura. Were they teaching what the Bible taught for itself? Here's what the Bible says about itself. I want to note that none of that all of these descriptions of the Bible that I'm going to give, this is not exhaustive. Read Psalm 119 if you get a chance. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Read it. It is word after word a defense of sola scriptura. Here's what the Bible says for itself. Scripture teaches us that God's word is useful for equipping the saints of ministry. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says this, All Scripture. How much of Scripture? How much? Say it loud. All. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture establishes the parameters of Christian practice. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, this is Paul, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Whenever you see that phrase, it is written, I want you to think sola scriptura, because even the Bible holds to this view. Especially the Bible holds to this view. As food is essential for the health and life of the body, so too is the word of God essential for the health and life of the spirit. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said that when he was, what? Fighting against or doing spiritual warfare against Satan. Someone asked me not too long ago, what do you believe about demons and what would you do if demons began to influence 
a situation. I said the first thing I would do is go to scripture. The second thing we would do is pray. The person said to me, why not use the gifts of the Spirit? I said, I use the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit has given us His Word of God and has given us prayer. And this is the example that Jesus Himself used. If you think that there are demonic influences in your life today, go to the Scriptures. Claim those Scriptures in your life. Speak the words of God out loud so that you and your adversary might hear God speak. When Jesus was confronted with Satan, the only thing he did was quote Deuteronomy three times. In fact, the New Testament teaches us this very principle in a theological way in Ephesians 6, 10, and 12 and verses 7 and 18. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So he tells us to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the feet clad ready in the gospel. And we've got, what's our weapon? So right up until now, everything that we have is only a defense. All I can defend myself in spiritual warfare with is is the armor of salvation, knowing these things. The breastplate of righteousness, all a defense. What is my weapon? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul tells us we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's easy to get on Facebook and see that person as your adversary. To note John Doe as your adversary. But John Doe espouses the doctrines and teachings of Satan if he does not espouse the doctrines and teachings of God. Or if he contradicts those doctrines and teachings of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If you're going to defeat the spiritual forces in evil places, you're going to have to do so with God's weaponry. And it is the word of God, praying at all times. Well, not only that, Scripture was used to prove the truthfulness of preaching. In Acts 17, 10 through 11, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Note that word, they were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The scripture says that the more noble believer searches the scriptures to see if what those who are teaching the scriptures are telling the truth. If you watch TBN, I have no problem. Maybe a little problem. But open that book up and see if what they are teaching is true. Health, wealth, and prosperity. If you have more faith, it's true. Turn to Mark 8 and see if it's true. 
Lord Jesus says, any man who would follow me must take up his cross, deny himself and take up his cross. Look at the apostles. They weren't rich men. If God calls you to be a prophet today, you better say, oh no, because you're about to have a rough life. But that's not what you see on TV. Oh, Prophet Bob, and he's going to have a scripture hoedown, and he's going to swing his goat around, and people are going to fall down, and you're going to give him all your money, and he's going to buy more planes. But noble Christian, you say you're mocking them? You're darn right I am. Those men are false teachers. The word of God is a cross. You want to be a Christian? Deny yourself. Take up a cross and follow a suffering Savior. That's the word of God. Finally, Scripture is not to be added to. It is no accident that this verse I'm about to read shows up at the last page, in the last paragraph of the Bible. Listen to what this verse says, Revelation 22, 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, this is the temptation of the American church to take away the harshness of what God's word teaches to make it palatable to people who have itching ears. Listen to the warning God gives to us. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Scripture believes in sola scriptura. Well, what then does sola scriptura mean? What does sola scriptura mean? Sola Scriptura means that we have an infallible and inerrant answer to all of life's great questions. What happens when we die? Will we all go to heaven? What happens to those bodies that are buried over there? When people knock on my door and they've lost a loved one, do you think I go to my mind to pick out those answers? No, because I don't know. Because I have not died and gone into the world, into heaven. I know someone who has. I know someone who's trustworthy on this. But no, we run and buy the next book from some kid who spent five minutes in heaven. Do you know something? By the way, we need to be on the next slide. Do you know something about that book, about five minutes in heaven? Do you know that there are equally amount there are an equal amount of books for every other religion that says they spent times in their own heaven? Do you know that? 
I read a book called Many Lives and Many Masters while I studied my undergrad degree at religious, at, in, in my religious studies class. And that was a story about a woman who spent many times, who spent her, she said she spent many lives, and it was always something spectacular. She always worked for the Queen of Sheba. She always was Nefertiti's assistant. She was the wife of the Pharaoh. She was never just a peasant who died of bubonic plague. Ever noticed that? Ever notice that? So stop reading them. You know what you tell people when their loved ones die? If that person is in Christ, hey, wherever his or her body is, and if the body's blown up into many parts, wherever those parts are, what was once corruptible flesh will be raised to incorruptible, imperishable flesh. How can you be so certain? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the first fruits of those who die and rise from the dead. Look with me at what God tells us. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible alone is the only sure source of revelation for how we must be saved. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible alone explains what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That means sometimes we add too much to what duty God requires of men. And sometimes we take away what duties God requires of men. But only say what God's word says is a duty required of men. Sola Scriptura means that we have an infallible and inerrant standard to which all authority of the church, the government, the philosophers, the politicians must finally answer to. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible has the right to bind the conscience of believers. Sola Scriptura means that God has revealed everything He wills us to know and has withheld everything He wills us to know or not to know. Christians are preoccupied with what God has not said and know very little about what God has said. What is God's will for my life? It's a big question. I know this. Obedience to the word. You say, can you give me a scripture to back that up? Let me see. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you worry about shall be added unto you. None of you did anything to get the brain that sits between your ears. None of you did anything to be born in this country. You just were. None of you did anything. All of the good things, if you really look at it, all of the good things that happen in your life are simply God's gift to you. Don't you understand that God can give you that wealth and take it away as quickly as he gives it? Actually, he can take it away quicker than he gives it. Overnight, need I remind you of 2008? <laughs> Scripture means that individual believers, because they are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, have the right to read and interpret the Scriptures for themselves. Now, this does not mean that anyone can decide what the Bible means for themselves. In other words, the rules of interpretation and reason and language and history and context and so on and so forth apply to every individual interpreter of the Word of God. If you're sitting in a Sunday school or at a Bible study and someone says, let me read this passage, and they read it to you and they go, 
what does that mean to you? Say, excuse me, wrong question. The question we should be asking is, what does that mean? Because what it means to you really doesn't matter. You say, that is not nice. I am telling you because I grew up in the house of Jim Summers. And he said a lot of things that meant something different to me that did not mean the same thing that he meant when he said it. And I tried several times to do what I thought he meant instead of what he meant he meant. And when I did what I thought he meant, and not according to what he meant, well, my posterior is just tissue now. That's it. I have several children who are trying to make that their plight as well. Sola Scriptura means that there are no new revelations from God. I said Sola Scriptura means that there are no new revelations from God. I said Sola Scriptura means that there are no new revelations from God according to the or to be added to his revealed will. So you had a dream. What happens when you have a dream that tells you to sin? Is it only from God when it's good? Usually the dreams that are from God go something like this. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow him. Look at the history. Martin Luther, a lawyer, walking down the street. He gets into a lightning storm. He gets scared, and lightning strikes a tree not too far away from him. And he says, God, if you get me out of this, I'll join a monastery. And here we sit, 500 years later, according to that monk's sacrifice. I'll be impressed when your dreams mean that you've given up something for Christ. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible is wholly inspired and without error, down to the very words. Here's what Sola Scriptura does not mean. Sola Scriptura does not mean that Scripture contains all truth. Anybody know who that is? Know who that is? That's Matumbo. And every time he'd knock away a shot, he'd look at the person and go, no, no, no. So I want you to keep that in mind. When I say what I say, I want you to remember. And every time you have a thought that comes up in your head about Scripture that's a wrong thought, I want you to go, no, no, no. Sola Scriptura does not mean that Scripture contains all truth. It means that Scripture, everything that Scripture touches and teaches, is wholly, infallibly, and inerrantly true. It means that all truth that believers need for faith and salvation are contained within its pages. But God has given the light of nature and reason to many people who aren't in Scripture. Pythagorean theorem is true. It's not found in Scripture, but it's true. Andrew Summers is the pastor of Northwest Baptist Church. is true, but it's not found within the pages of Scripture. What Scripture informs is how Andrew Summers is to be the pastor. What Scripture informs is how the Pythagorean theorem is to be applied. Because across this world today, men have taken the knowledge of God and have applied it for evil. Just this past week, one of the worst things 
Someone took a good technology like Facebook Live that we use to get the word of God out, a neutral technology, and murdered a 74-year-old man. Not everything, Scripture does not contain all truth, but everything that it touches and teaches is completely true down to the very letters of the words, and not the least of those will be wiped away until all is accomplished. Sola Scriptura does not mean that Scripture is the only authority for believers. God has given other authorities for believers. He has given to the church apostles and teachers and elders and pastors. He has given to every believer the government. There is no authority except for what God has given, Romans 13.1. But both of those authorities are under God's law. All authority. And we might say correctly, when that authority strays from God's perfect, infallible word, you have given up your authority. You are not in agreement with God's word. Sola Scriptura does not mean that all human interpretations of the Bible are equal. Some are good, and some are bad. And people tell us all the time, well, you have your interpretation, and I have mine. Yes, but mine, more often than not, is the right one. You say, that's arrogant. It's as simple as you can have this too. Follow the rules of interpretation. So that when you're trying to find out whether or not to buy a house, you don't go like this. The house of the Lord will stand forever. Therefore, God wants me to buy a house. No. What does the scripture mean according to its context? What does the word mean? House of God does not mean your home. You say, do people really live that way? Yes, they do. Sola Scriptura does not mean that the person is able to understand the Bible all on his own. 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us that Scripture, or that God has given to us teachers who are to instruct us. 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us that there are teachers who are worthy of a double honor. That those who labor in teaching and preaching the word of God. There are certain people who have been given that gift and who have been given the time to that struggle. Sola Scriptura does not mean that every scripture is equally plain in its meaning. Sola Scriptura does not mean that we should not read other books. Sola Scriptura does not mean that there are no literary genres in the Bible. Do you know what the Reformers meant by a literal reading of the Bible? Census literalis. It meant read the Bible according to its appropriate literary genre. That means that when the Bible speaks in poetry, it is poetry. And when the Bible speaks in proverb, it is proverb. And when the Bible speaks in hyperbole, it is hyperbole. At the end of the book of John... John says that the the works of Jesus were so great that if we were to take all of the works down, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the space of the books that we've collected. That's a hyperbole. Don't take it literally. Don't go get a map and a compass and a ruler to see if that's what Jesus meant. He just means that Jesus did so many great works. 
finally, sola scriptura does not mean we worship the Bible. The Bible is not to be worshipped. Don't make this an idol. Well, some of us come across objections. The Bible has been changed in transmission and translation. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have heard that? that the, just raise your hand if you've heard that. The Bible has been changed in transmission and in translation. And so, therefore, we cannot be certain that what we're reading is true today. Let me give you an answer to that. The only way to know whether or not that statement is true is to point to the standard of what the Bible said in its original writings. In other words, for a person to prove the point that the Bible has been changed, they have to be able to go to you and show you, here's what the original said. Here's what yours said. Do they match up? If they don't match up, it's been changed. So challenge them to do that. Guess what you're going to find? That when you go to the original, exactly what God wants is right here in your English translation. It has not been changed. That is completely false. The exact, this exactly, uh, excuse me, is what the field of textual criticism does. They work tirelessly to ensure that the copies of the Word of God are as close to the originals as they can possibly be. How about this one? The Bible is irrelevant for modern times. How many of you have heard that one? Raise your hand if you've heard that one. We don't need the Bible anymore. It's outdated. It's homophobic. It's not with the times. Scripture certainly doesn't think this about itself. David said, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Hebrews said, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason why so many think the Bible is irrelevant is that they don't want to be penetrated by its blade. That's why they say, Scripture is irrelevant. It's because they don't want to digest its truth. They want Scripture to be palatable. Because as Paul told Timothy, men will come and they will have itching ears. And guess what there will be? Men who are willing to scratch them. By making the Bible palatable. But God's Word is unfailing. And whether or not it is digestible by you is not the Bible's problem, it's yours. Thank you. I've said a lot of things that were amen worthy. I don't know why that was the first one that got us. Thank you. Oh, don't get on the bandwagon, Cliff. <laughs> How about this one? The books of the Bible were selected by men who wanted to support their own form of Christianity. How many of you have heard that one? The books of, let me, I'm going to throw a word out there. If you've heard this word, raise your hand. Nicaea. How many of you have heard that word, Nicaea? Raise it high. High, 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 high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks they know what happened at that, at that council in 325 A.D. You got people who couldn't stick their thumb in their nose with both hands who know Nicaea. Do you know what Nicaea was? It was a council 
where the church had finally gotten the opportunity to get from out from underneath the guillotine of the Roman Empire and discuss for the first time what churches were doing in secret to make it what it was in public. That's what it was. We have scriptures that predate Nicaea by hundreds of years. Chester Beatty Library. It is baloney that that council got together and selected the New Testament. In fact, it's not until the 30, it's not until in 367 when Athanasius signed his 39th Easter letter in honor of last week that we have our first collection of books, at least the Bible, in the modern canonical way that it approaches us today. We had many lists that went before it. And all of the books, you might be surprised, all of the books, sometimes they weren't all in there, but all of the books that are in there today were in those original early lists. It's not until 367 until they show up. So a lot of people don't even know their history. Here's what those men did when they selected the canon. They selected books that were written by an apostle or endorsed by one. Because they believed that the foundation of the faith was the apostles and the prophets, as Ephesians tells us. Two, they received the early or they received what early Christians received as authoritative. And third, they received those books that were consistent with all of Scripture. They did not choose the books that suited their own welfare. In fact, isn't it ironic? The same people who say that the Bible is irrelevant and too hard suggest that men selected a book of, Bi of the Bible that was too easy. Men would never select a book that says deny yourself and take up the cross. The Bible is full of contradictions. No, it's not. A contradiction affirms and denies the same thing at the same time and in the same sense. To say that God is one in essence and three in person, though the Bible doesn't say that in those words, it does give the concept, is not a contradiction. The Bible supports slavery and genocide. No, it does not. For in Christ there is no slave, no free. No Jew, no Greek. No male, no female. Or people say there is no one true meaning for a text of Scripture. What they've done there is misunderstood meaning with application. There is only one meaning for every Scripture. But there are many applications of that meaning. Well, then what does sola scriptura mean for us as we leave this morning? Sola scriptura means for us that we can lean on God's word as completely trustworthy in all matters of the past, present, and the future, no matter how great or how small. Is that good news? No matter how great or small, past, present, and future, when you worry about whether or not you're going to die and see your loved ones or be with Jesus or raise again, Scripture says you are okay. Scripture tells us that if we have faith, in Christ alone, we will be saved. Isn't that good news? That tomorrow when you screw up what you think was your perfect faith, remember that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. 
Sola Scriptura means for us that we can know specifically who God is and what duties He requires of us. People say to me all the time, who is God? Read Him in His Word. Sola Scriptura means for us that God's Word alone has the right to bind our consciences. If you've got a pastor or a mother or an authority in your life that is binding your conscience on something that Scripture does not tell you is sin... Go with Scripture. If you've got someone in your life telling you something that Scripture says to the contrary, go with Scripture. Sola Scriptura means for us that we can have confidence, certainty, and even peace when we talk and walk in accordance with the Scriptures. How many of us want peace today? If your life is missing peace, ask yourself, is it in accordance with God's word? Sola Scriptura means that God's word alone has the right to judge us for our attitudes and actions as either good or evil. And Sola Scriptura means for us that God's word alone establishes the Christian's individual and collective relationship to all human institutions, the church, civil authorities, etc., we have a day and age where men are rebelling against civil authority. But scripture tells us there is no authority except that which is from God. As we leave this morning, I want you to read with me Psalm 1, 1 through 4. The first book of Psalm, the first chapter of Psalm sets the tone for the whole book. I just want to read the first four verses. Meditate on this this week as you think about Sola Scriptura. The passage begins with this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You want your life to be blessed? Don't walk in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat. What does it mean to walk in the way of sinners? It means to follow the world. It means to read Yahoo and let Yahoo define what you should do with your money and what you should do with your mate and what you should do in your life. That is what it means to walk in the way of sinners. But that man is not blessed. Only the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law meditates day and night. The blessed man, he is like a tree. What is our symbol? It's a little tiny sprout. I don't want us to stay a sprout. Would that the Lord would make our symbol a tree with much fruit. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season and its leaf do not wither. 
That means that if you want to bear fruit, you must plant yourself in the word alone. There is no fruit planted in the poison of sinners. His leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff the wind drives away. Just look at the lies. Look at the lies. I have seen so many believers. Let me tell you the test of their lies. It is their faithfulness in times of suffering that speaks so loudly. It is their giving in times of abundance that speaks so loudly. It is their kind and soft and gentle word that speaks so loudly. It is their forgiveness of the unforgivable sins of people who have hurt them in their life that speaks so loudly. But with the wicked, all of their ways are like chaff. We won't remember those ways. Plant yourself in sola scriptura. Let's pray. God, let us obey your word. Create in this church this morning and going forward a love and a desire for your word. As we said, Lord, the wind blows and we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. We will know, Lord God, whether or not our trees are planted in the water of the word, if those trees bear fruit of the word. Lord, let us see fruit of the word. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close in song? Father, bless us now as we go. God, help us, each and every one of us, to saturate ourselves this week in your word, your precious word, knowing that every word has come from you. 
Bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Due to the rain, if you all will meet in here with us for the children's ministry meeting so I don't send you out in the rain, just stay right here in the front. If you're in children's ministry, right here in the front, I'll bring our stuff over.